We're making our way through Thessalonians, so I invite you to take your Bible and go there with me. I'm going to back up a little bit and read from verses 16 to 24. Stuff we've already covered, but a good reminder and setting some of the, the context. Remember, he's wrapping up this letter to the church that he loves and cares for. and wants to see them continue in the faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. The apostle Paul writes, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Father, we ask again for your help as we come to your word. Would your truth penetrate our cold hearts? Help us to not just understand your truth, but to apply it and live it out. And we pray you use it to empower us to obey and serve Christ. We ask and depend on him. Amen. For those who run marathons or any long, you know, marathon length distance, there is a phenomenon known as hitting the wall. And you've heard of that? Some of you have any heard of that? Hitting the wall? One running magazine describes it as, quote, an awful experience. You feel like you've run face first into a brick wall. Your legs simultaneously feel like they're made of jelly, yet they also weigh eight tons each. Every step is an enormous triumph of will, and you start to seriously doubt that the race even has a finish line. It usually happens to runners around the 18-mile mark, and it is the result of insufficient Fueling. It's not talking about something that is just, you know, you, you feel like giving up. It's not that. This is something different. You may have seen videos of this, men and women crawling on their hands and knees because they can no longer run. Devastating effects on a runner's body. Uh, from a scientific standpoint, hitting the wall means your body has depleted the energy stored within it that it can easily access. So when you exercise, when you do something uh, for an extended period of time, even a short period of time, your body is going to use something called glycogen. And glycogen is made from carbohydrates and it's stored in your liver and it's stored in your muscles. And people run long distance, they go, well, your body is using fat to burn. And that's true. You have to train that. But even if your body uses fat as a source of energy, it still needs glycogen in order to access and process the energy stored. So if a runner goes too long without refilling glycogen, if he runs out, he will, or he may at least, hit the wall. And doing a little bit of research, some scientists, they don't even know why it happens. Some think it could be even genetic. So runners, you see them, they take Gatorade or something in the race. They can't go on nothing because they may deplete that. Now, by looking at me, you might be able to tell I'm I'm not a marathon runner. Uh, I've never been a marathon runner. Uh, But it doesn't mean I didn't do something. I played sports in high school and then 
some college, you know, do exercise and classes. And so the, you have your share of strenuous activity, like I'm sure most of you did around that age. In my college studies, I also learned about the various systems that need to be working in order for any athlete to succeed or to fulfill his maximum potential. So take a bodybuilder or take an NFL player. We tend to focus on his muscles. You know, what can he do? How far can he jump? How fast can he run? But there's a lot more involved than just your muscles. You have added to the muscles your skeletal system. So you have a man's bones and tendons and and ligaments. They need to be able to handle the stress or he can't continue. There's also the respiratory system. His body needs to be able to deliver oxygen to the muscles involved, to his brain. Tied to that, you have the cardiovascular system. That's your heart delivering oxygen and nutrients to the rest of your body so that they can function. Then you have the nervous system. That's gonna regulate your blood pressure and your body temperature and your pulse. That's all happening automatically. You've also got your digestive system. That's involved. What you did eat or what you didn't eat or if you ate too much, that's going to affect your ability to perform. And then on top of all the physical systems in the body, there's also the psychological component. Even if, if an athlete has a perfectly healthy body, if he mentally decides he doesn't want to do it anymore for some reason, he won't continue. When we think about all these systems that need to be working in order for an athlete to accomplish his task, We can, on the one hand, marvel at the wisdom and the intricacy of God's creation, but we should also be humbled because if any one of those systems fails, that athlete is not gonna be able to finish. It's a pretty fragile and precarious situation. And how does that physical reality compare to the spiritual realities? We are, as Christians, in a race, and it's not a 40-yard dash. It's a marathon. How fragile is that race? How easy is it for someone not to finish? How many systems are there in our lives that could fail? How many different things could drag you down and keep you from completing the race? How many possibilities are there for you and I to hit the wall in our Christian life? If all we had was our human ability, the answers would seem to be endless because every day you're gonna be attacked by your own sin, we're attacked by the sin and the temptations in the world, we're attacked by the hostility of the world, and then we have Satan, our enemy, prowling as a lion. The reality of our weakness is what led the songwriter to say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the human condition. That's what Paul wrote about in Romans 7. The stuff I want to do, I I can't do it. The stuff I don't want to do, I keep doing it. We could not keep ourselves saved even if our eternity depended on it. But the writer of that song understood that our preservation isn't ultimately up to us. And so the full verse that I quoted to you says, oh, to grace, how great a debtor Daily, I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a a fetter, that's that's a chain, a shackle. What you want your goodness to bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
the writer of that hymn understood what the Bible clearly teaches, that God will protect and preserve all who belong to him. Theologically, this is known as the perseverance of the saints. In more modern communication, you might have heard someone say it like this, once saved, always saved. That is a, a biblical principle. Those who belong to God will persevere in the faith and it will happen because God will preserve them. And there are some who doubt this, there are some who dispute this, but you find it all throughout the New Testament. God repeatedly promises us that those who belong to him in Christ, those who have surrendered their lives to him, those who have trusted fully and only in Christ's death and resurrection for salvation, those people will not only be justified, they will be sanctified and they will be one day glorified. They'll be forgiven the penalty of sin and they will one day be fully free from the power and the presence of sin. All of God's people will make it to the end. They will cross the finish line and Christ as the son of God guarantees it. This is what Jesus says in John 6. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus' picture of salvation was not happenstance. It wasn't that some people might come. It was God had laid out his chosen ones. He had sent his son in order to save them and they will come and they will be saved. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. He will protect his flock. John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The elect of God are a gift from God the father to God the son and the son preserves them. No true Christian can lose his salvation because it was never his in the first place. Salvation is a gift of God. He guarantees it. And so the apostle Paul, knowing that, says Romans 8, 29 and 30, right after the very much more familiar verse, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Here's the purpose, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that the son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul writes that in the past tense, which I think is an expression of the reality of this story has already been written and it's not gonna change. Later in the same chapter, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation Shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What Paul said to the Romans, he also said to the Ephesians. He said to them, those who belong to Christ are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You put a down payment on a house. You're saying there's more to come. This is the beginning. That's what the Holy Spirit is to a Christian. God gives you his spirit. He, is, he seals you. He is the seal of God. And he guarantees an eternal inheritance. Maybe more familiar to us, to the Philippians, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Jesus affirms it. The apostle Paul affirms it. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept or reserved in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation and ready to be revealed in the last time. God preserves his people. He grants them the faith to continue. That's what Philippians 1.29 says. And I'll just stop there for now. It's a number of references, but it's from Jesus. It's from Paul. It's from Peter. They all point to the same message, which I hope is clear. Salvation cannot be lost. So with that kind of longer introduction than usual, let's look one more time at Paul's closing benediction and prayer to the Thessalonians. And I want to just consider what he's saying. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying the same thing in, in two different ways, and emphasizing a couple different realities. So there's two parts to his request. The first part of the request is that Christians be completely sanctified. In Spanish, it's easier because santificar is related to santo, holy. Sanctify is to make holy, and for something to be holy means that it's set apart. When you come to Christ, you're set apart. You're in the kingdom of darkness. You're, you're a child of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, and you're transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. You're set apart spiritually. You're set apart in your status. That's also known as justification. But from that day forward, you are being set apart practically. You are being empowered and changed by the Spirit so that you look more and more like Christ. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You behold the glory of God and you go from one degree of glory to another. You look more like Jesus with regard to holiness. That's, that's the, the breaking of the power of sin in your life. That's, some people call it progressive sanctification. 
It's a process, but that process one day will end when you see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, you will be freed finally, completely from the sinful world and from your sinful flesh. That's the final uh, uh, um, hope or, or answer to Paul's prayer at the end of Romans 7, who will set me free from this body of death? That's also known as glorification. That's the first part of Paul's request. And the reminder in that request is that that work in our hearts, the beginning, the the ongoing process, and the end, is the work of, he says, the God of peace. And he also adds, it's in English and it's in the Greek, the word himself. It's an emphasis on who's doing it. God himself does this for his people. It's part of his very nature to save and to love and to sanctify And what an amazing reminder that would be to the Thessalonians. If you remember chapter one, he says they turned to God from dead idols. They came out of Greek paganism, a panoply of gods, all marked by how capricious they are, how finicky, how volatile, how unpredictable they are. Your God may accept your offering one day and the next day he's he's mad at you for a reason you don't even know. But that's not our God. Our God is a God of peace. We understand that there are passages that tell us God is a God of anger. The Old Testament says God is a God of jealousy and and vengeance. That is true because all of humanity lies under his wrath because of our sin. We've rebelled against God. In one sense, yes, he is a God of wrath. But God sent his son into the world to make peace. You don't want to imagine humanity as as neutral. Everybody's neutral, and God comes in, and then some get condemned, and some go to heaven. Humanity comes before God worthy of condemnation. Jesus says, judgment, I didn't come to bring judgment. Judgment's already on the world. God came to take a mass of humanity that is undeserving, rebellious, vile, and wicked. They are his enemies, and he makes them his friends. That's the God of peace. He makes peace with them through his son, Jesus Christ, who offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice, who propitiated the righteousness and the wrath of God. And those who come to Christ then walk with him, they live for his glory, and as a gift to them is not just peace with God, but it's peace in their hearts, the peace of God. We as Christians can walk knowing that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how assaulted we are by our own sin or by the hatred of this world, we know God has given us the victory. And so we have peace. He will sanctify us. The second part of Paul's request in verse 23 expands on this idea of of completeness. Because he says, may God sanctify you completely. Now he expands it. The second half of verse 23, he says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of stuff you can read and discuss regarding the theology here. Not all of it's helpful, I think. We understand what the body is. That's, that's the physical part of it. You can see it. You can measure it. There are rules to it. But there are also words in the Bible that point to a non-physical part of who you are. And here he lists the soul and the spirit. I'm going to tell you, I I think you need to be 
be careful not to get too caught up in making clear distinctions between these words. When you study the Bible, your main question should be, what is the author trying to say? Some people say here that Paul is trying to teach that human existence should be broken down into three distinct categories, and I'm not sure that's the case. I don't think it is. Because this is not the only portion of scripture where the humanity is broken down into classes or, or segments or categories. In the Old Testament, it says we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. So are those the three categories of humanity, or are these the three categories? What about in Luke chapter 10, Jesus adds a fourth category. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and your mind, he adds. So is that a, are there four categories? How does this work? If you do a Bible study on the various words for the non-physical aspects of man, you'll find there's a lot of overlap between these words. Words like soul, spirit, overlap. They think, they reason, they feel. You find the same types of things being done by the mind, the strength, the will, the conscience. The heart is a big one. There are times where these words are used in a very precise way. I think Hebrews makes a distinction between our soul, the soul of a living person, and the spirits in heaven. So the soul in that case might mean the spirit within a man. Spirit would refer to a spirit without a body, potentially. But generally, the, the, the words are, are just used to speak of a person as a whole, the entirety of a person. So in Acts chapter 2, it says Peter preaches, and it says 3,000 souls were added to the church. Do we go, oh, just the souls were added, not the bodies? That doesn't really make sense. It's just using the word soul to speak of the entirety of a person. We do the same thing physically. I got, I got five mouths to feed. You, you know, you're feeding a person. You're just using a part of them to speak of the wholeness of who they are. Uh, Paul's main point here isn't to draw a clear distinction between three areas. The Bible doesn't even give definitions of some of these. His goal is to highlight the completeness of God's work in your life. God is preserving and God is working on all of you. Every parent knows what it is to tell their kid to do something and then to come back and realize they didn't really do the whole thing. You clean the mirror. I remember as a kid, my dad would say, clean the mirror. And you clean the mirror as best I could. And he'd come in and go, that spot, that spot, that spot. Oh, and every kid goes, oh, I, I didn't see it. Well, that's not how God is working on us. It's not just that God is choosing one area where you're going to renovate your house. You know, I got a room. I, got a, I got only got so much money. I'm going to renovate this room. And then people come over and say, oh, look at that. I just, I just redid my bathroom. And I'm going to do the kitchen next. I'll do the living room next. And then I'm going to eventually be done. God doesn't work like that. Look, God's working on my, on my soul. He's made my soul holy, but my body, that, that's still sinful or vice versa. It's all of you. That's what God's working on. We are a, a, a unity of body, physical, and immaterial, spiritual. His sanctifying work is on our body, our soul. It affects our mind, our conscience, our heart, whatever. All of it right now is affected by sin, tainted by sin. But one day, as Paul says here, it will be presented blameless before the Lord. So you can say our sanctification, one, is guaranteed, and two, it is complete. It's comprehensive. Every part of who you are is affected by sin right now. But it will be redeemed. And that includes our relationships with one another. Even though Paul doesn't mention it here. That's the promise of God. I started out by, by telling you that, reminding you of those important truths. Understanding that truth about the perseverance of the saints, God's final work, brings up an interesting question here. 
If this is something God has guaranteed, why is Paul praying for it? Does that question make sense? If this is something that God has already promised us, why ask for it? If my kids wake up one morning and say, Dad, can we have pizza tonight and then ice cream for dinner? And I say in that scenario, yeah, you know what? It's been a while. Let's do it. Tonight, I promise you, we'll do that. We're going to have pizza for dinner. We're going to have ice cream for dessert. What happens if at various times throughout the day, my kids go, Dad, can we have pizza for dinner? Ice cream for dessert? Can we do that? My, my natural response is not going to be pleased with their questions, right? That question implies a number of things, but a number of possibilities. It could be that my kids have no ability to retain information, and that's probably not the case. It could be that they don't trust the promise that I made to them. That's understandable, but not, not what I would like. It could be that they're trying to intentionally annoy me, and that's going to jeopardize the promise I made to them. Those repeated questions about a promise I've already made, it's, for a dad, it's the same feeling of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? I already told you, just wait. I think every parent there, we, we sympathize with that. So what are we to make of Paul asking for something that God has already promised? If repeated requests from our children about something we've already promised them are met with our own disapproval or annoyance, wouldn't this prayer be met with the disapproval of our heavenly father? And we have to say no, that can't be the answer because he's writing by the spirit of God. God put this in scripture and this is not the only time in scripture where someone prays for something God has promised. We have to believe God is honored by this prayer and we talked about that a little bit when we looked at verse 17 that says pray without ceasing. God hears us, he receives our prayers. He's not dishonored by this. We need to recognize that the Bible is filled with instructions and examples of people praying about things God has already promised. In the Old Testament, you have King Solomon, King David praying for the upholding of Israel, praying for the restoration of Israel. They're they're claiming his promises. I'll give you just one simple example. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And if you do that, he says, all these things will be added to you. And he's not saying all these things and you could invent whatever all these things. He talked about what these things are. He said it's food and water and clothing. Whatever you need, the necessities of life, God will provide for you. But in the same chapter, Matthew chapter six, Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. And part of his sample prayer for them includes, give us this day our daily bread. So God promises to provide for us, and yet Jesus says we should pray for provision. I think that's a good parallel here for Paul's prayer. And meditating on that seeming tension, it's not a real tension, I think we get three important reminders about the Christian life, and I'm going to summarize them each into a single word. The first word is perseverance. We read a prayer like this, verses 23 and 24, the word perseverance should come to mind. Yes, we know that God will preserve us, but we can never allow that truth to minimize our own work toward that goal. Yes, God will make sure we finish the race, but that doesn't mean we can stop running. Paul told the Corinthians, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, run the race. Run in such a way that you may win. 
At the end of his life, Paul said to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's 2 Timothy 4, 7. Hebrews 12 instructs us to run with endurance. We need to persevere. We need to labor. We need to exert ourselves. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this prayer with this glorious truth about preservation, also wrote them the rest of the letter, which is filled with commands and instructions about how they're to live to please God and walk in his ways. And we should imagine that when Paul mentions the complete sanctification of them, their souls, their bodies, their spirits, that would have spurred them in their own pursuit of holiness, and he should do the same for us. The heart and the tone of Paul's prayer reminds us that the sanctification of the church is not something he expects to happen all at once when you go to Christ. So yeah, you came to faith, you're a baby Christian, you got a lot of ways you can grow, but just stay there your whole life, and then when Christ comes, you'll take a big jump and praise God. That's not what he says. That's not what he's envisioning here. He says, I pray that you're going to end here, but in the meantime, I want you to be moving toward that. This should be our progress right now. God should be moving us in this direction. And in fact, the, the, the epistle of 1 John tells us that if that's not happening in our life, we don't belong to Christ. And it's not because we lost our salvation. It's because we were never saved to begin with. We were deceived. We were like the unfruitful seed in Jesus' parable. Once saved, always saved is a biblical phrase. You can defend it biblically, but you better make sure you're saved. There are plenty of parents, grandparents, well-meaning people who go, I know they're saved because of this or this happened at, at whatever age. But if you have no desire to fight sin, if you don't care to honor Christ and to love his people, it doesn't matter what prayer you prayed or who signed your Bible or whatever else happened, you do not belong to God. That's the message of 1 John. If the direction of your life is not heavenly, you're not going to heaven. Not because we have to earn or win our way, but because that's the evidence of God making you a new creation. And if you're not headed to heaven, that can change if you will humble yourself and call out to Christ, who doesn't snap bruised reeds or extinguish smoldering wicks, but restores them and brings salvation. So we're to have a zeal in our walk. That, that's, uh, Titus says zealous for righteousness, for good deeds. But in our zeal for righteousness, in our desire to grow in holiness and in purity, we should remember a second word, and that is dependency. Dependency. So there should be perseverance in our lives, but there should also be dependency. That is humility, a recognition that it doesn't ultimately depend on us. We need something else. Perseverance without dependency is the recipe for arrogance and self-righteousness. God promises final salvation, but it is never something we should receive lightly. Salvation is not an airplane ticket. Look, here's a ticket. I got a bullet in here. Here's a ticket for your flight. You're guaranteed, I got a ticket. I'm gonna make it to the flight and I'm there. That's not how salvation works. You just gotta hang on to it. Salvation is a promise, a personal promise, say from the airline or from the pilot saying, you're gonna have a spot on this plane. We're depending on someone to keep their promise. That's what salvation is. The guarantee of our salvation does not depend ultimately on us. It depends on the character and the nature of God. 
And that's part of Paul's reminder here. May he himself sanctify you completely. May he keep you blameless to the coming of our Lord. And asking that it would be complete one day, he's expressing dependence on God who makes that happen. God who saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the same God who must sustain us. So that's why Paul, when he thinks back on his life and his ministry and his pains and his trials and his pursuit of holiness, never takes the credit for himself. He gives glory to God. We were saying that in the last verse for um, um, the, the last song, I will not boast in anything. That was Paul's life. At the end of Colossians 1, he says, we proclaim Christ. We're warning everyone. We're teaching everyone with all wisdom. That there's an exertion there that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's his ministry. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says it wasn't me, it was God working in me. It's the opposite of Herod who gave us, I think it's Acts 12, he gave a speech and the people said, wow, he speaks the voice of a God, not of a man. And the Bible says he died and was eaten by worms because he did not give God the glory. May that never be the condition of our Christian life. We give God the glory. Paul persevered. There was sweat, there was blood, there were tears, but behind all that he knew was the sustaining power of God. And so when Paul calls on the Philippians to do the same, he says, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's human responsibility. Work it out, live it out. But he says, do it because it is God who works in you both to will, that's to desire, and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one who produces in us the desire to be righteous, the desire to please him, the desire to know Christ more, and he's the one who gives us the power to do it. So we should persevere all the time, but always with a heart of dependency. The final word I wanna give you, we'll end with this. I think this is the, the biggest, in terms of what Paul is trying to do here, The word is encouragement. Encouragement. Paul's prayer here near the end of the letter serves as an encouraging reminder to the church. And it's a wonderful reminder that we should give to ourselves when we need it and to one another. We see ourselves fail over and over again. We see our brothers and our sisters fail over and over again. We see those in our family, in our homes, in our marriage, in our church fail over and over again. We see the the looming attacks from the world. And what that produces is a certain kind of concern or anxiety. Personally, you might think things like, what if I don't hold up? What if I fail? What if I just can't get past this or that in my life? What if I can't stand up for the truth like I should when the time comes? Or maybe you look around at others and you think, I just, I just don't see how that brother or that sister is ever going to change. I just don't see how the church is ever going to change. I just don't see how my husband or my wife is ever going to change. I think the Apostle Paul would say, away with that kind of thinking. Because the God of peace himself will sanctify and preserve his people. 
And we should be reminding one another about this regularly. God will sustain us. That's the point behind all the verses I quoted at the beginning of of the message. I've got one more. You might know this passage. It's the end of Jude. So Peter Peter affirms his truth. Paul affirms his truth. Jesus affirms his truth. And now Jude, the the brother, half-brother of Jesus, in the closing verses of his letter, it's only one chapter, he praises God. And here's what he says. Notice how he characterizes God. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to him, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He praises God because he can do what we can't do in salvation and in sanctification. It's a beautiful promise that we need to rest in and we need to allow it to empower us in the race we're running. God will present us blameless one day in Jesus Christ. It's like a father holding his little girl's hand and they're about to cross a busy street and they're looking left and right and he tells the little girl, hold my hand. That's what every dad tells their little girl. You should. And they're going to cross. And in obedience, her responsibility is to hold her dad's hand. But no matter what happens, we know that as a father, we have a greater responsibility to hold on to that little girl. And so when her grip loosens and softens or when she gets distracted by something else, a father clings to his girl. And how beautiful it is to know that our father holds us in his hand. What an encouragement. There's a hymn written over 100 years ago by Ada Habershon. The title is, He Will Hold Me Fast. It was recently updated musically by Matt Merker and the Gettys with their music company. I'm going to read the whole song to you. It's only three verses. And the point is easy to know as I read it. The song says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. And the last verse says, for my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. It's a beautiful song and it points to the absolute confidence that Paul has and that's what he repeats in verse 24. I don't even need to explain it, I think, but let's read it. Verse 24, Paul adds, he who calls you, the one who brought you to himself, he who calls you is 
faithful. That's not speaking of the evangelistic call, the human call. That's God. That's the divine call. He called you to himself. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. What greater encouragement could we have to persevere and to depend on him and to trust in the Lord who holds us? Let's pray. Father, there are fundamental, basic truths to our faith. But these fundamentals are so easily forgotten as we go through every day, faced with distractions and temptations. We don't want to persevere. We want to enjoy the pleasures of this world. We want to be lulled into spiritual sleep by all the distractions available in our culture. And we forget that there is a mass of humanity headed for eternal destruction and in your mercy you've given us salvation. And in our battles and in our losses and in our failures, there is the temptation and the message of Satan that would call us to give up, to turn our backs on this pilgrimage how grateful we are to know that you hold us and that you sustain us. Christ, who has begun by his spirit a work in us, will complete it. And we will be before you blameless one day, not because of our work, not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because he has done it for us. When we see him there will be no sin left that needs to be purged for 500 years in purgatory. We will be blameless before him because you are faithful to your promises and you will do it. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.